0: Here on American Family Radio, this is Peter Rosenberger, and I'm so glad that you are with us. More than 65 million Americans right now are serving as a family caregiver. If you're one of them, then you're in the right place. If you know somebody who's a caregiver, then you're in the right place. If you are a pastor or a counselor, you're in the right place. Because caregivers are everywhere in this society. And if you love somebody you're most likely going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're going to need one. So we all have a stake in this. And speaking to the family caregiver, addressing the family caregiver, meeting the needs of the family caregiver is in our personal, community, and national best interest. Did you know that more than $500 billion in unpaid care is done every year by family caregivers? That's a lot of money even by Washington DC standards that our country presumes upon the efforts of an untrained and unpaid workforce that is caring for the most vulnerable among us how do we help these people why should we help these people do we help these people these are all questions that we explore on this program and i'm so glad that you're with us hopeforthecaregiver.com if you want to see more information you know hardly The stereotype, smiling, uniformed women pushing the elderly in the park. You know, that's, if you notice, that's what caregivers are portrayed like. That we're sitting around in these serene settings and we're just looking with great affection and tenderness at an older person. And we're so grateful to be there. And that's not what the family caregiver is. That is not an accurate representation of who we are. A family caregiver can be from all walks of life. Children are caregivers. Seniors are caregivers. Men, women, professionals, non-professionals. Family caregivers are those who put themselves between a chronically impaired loved one and even worse, disaster. That's what a caregiver is. And we rarely get to go to parks, you know most of us are are working at least two jobs one is a full-time caregiver the other uh, trying to make a living most of us are putting in long hours most of us don't get a day off most of us are doing things that we're really not very well trained at but we're just doing them we spend a lot of time with laundry and cleaning and domestic chores and then we're trying to juggle about six or seven different things Pharmaceuticals, a doctor's appointments, you know, still again running business stuff, managing a household, budgets, taxes, all the things that are involved in living with somebody with a chronic impairment or caring for somebody with a chronic impairment. You find anywhere where there's trauma, disease, including addiction, disorders, and mental illness, and you will see a family caregiver. It's challenging to know what to say to a family caregiver. That's why I want to take a little bit in this opening segment here of the program just to talk about that because a lot of people don't know what to say. And in the absence of not knowing what to say, they'll either say nothing or something goofy. And they'll try to button it up because it is uncomfortable. And it's okay to say nothing, but it's not okay to avoid or isolate or ostracize. That is not okay. Saying nothing is actually not a bad thing. If you look at Job 2.13, his friends sat there with him for seven days and said nothing because they were aghast at at the suffering that he had to go through. And it's when they started talking and speculating about why he had to go through it, that's when the wheels came off theologically. And and it's really kind of interesting. The book of Job is a very interesting book because God allows 30-something chapters of bad theology to be on display and just... Lays it all out there. These guys sitting there just trying to figure out why this happened to Job and Job and none of them ever got it right. Not one of them, not even Job. And we have no record of God ever explaining himself to any of them, including Job. Now we know the backstory of what happened. And whoever wrote Job knows the backstory of what happened, but there's no record of Job ever knowing. And God is not in the business of explaining himself. But that does not absolve us from ministering one another just because we don't know all the answers. In fact, we're not required to know all the answers. In fact, we're not capable of knowing all the answers. And that's all right. But we've been invited to, asked to, and mandated to, to go into the distress of people's lives with the confidence of gospel ministry to be able to speak to them, minister to them, be with them, communicate to them in a way that they can understand human connection and the saving power of Christ and the transformative power of the gospel, the healing power of the gospel. And the question is, are we doing that? And if so, what does that look like? And if not, why? Because Jesus was pretty clear on this. Reading from Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and he came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, thirsty, or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say unto them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he turns right around and says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink, I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or as a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison, and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's no ambiguity there, is there? There is not one iota of ambiguity. He's very clear in what he's looking for, what he's expecting. And sometimes we don't know what that looks like. But if our hearts are attuned to what God's heart is attuned to, then we'll see it. We'll have opportunities to be able to go into those situations. And he's not asking us to fix everything. He's asking us to minister. To minister to others the same way he's ministered to us because he came to us in our broken estate, in our, you know, messed up lives. Don't think for one moment that our lives need less saving than others. We are all wretched and need a savior, dead in our sins. And so I know it's difficult to know what to say sometimes because sometimes the heartache is too much. Even the Holy Spirit groans in words that we can't even process. I get that. We're not required to go in and be glib and have a great vocabulary. We're just required to minister. We are asked to go and show the same grace and comfort that we ourselves have received. And one of the ways you could start with this is, is if, if you're not a caregiver, but you want to be able to speak to them, you know them in your congregation, for example, if you're a pastor or you're a counselor and somebody comes into your office and you don't know where to start. How about with this? These words right here. I see you and the magnitude of what you carry, and I hurt with you. Start with that. Just start with that and see where it goes from there. William Blake once said, Can I see another's woe and not be in sorrow too? As believers, can we see another's woe and not grieve and not mourn with them? Scripture says we mourn with those who mourn. We grieve with those who grieve. That's part of the journey. And this is the heart of our Savior. We're going to talk more about that. And also have a very special guest coming up in the next segment, John Eldridge, author of Wild at Heart. You don't want to miss that. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. We'll be right back.
1: 120 Witch Doctors Come to Christ. This is Bible League International. In Indonesia, Pastor Tandi invited a witch doctor on the island of Papua to hear the gospel. The man came with 120 apprentices, men and women learning witchcraft. And after hearing the gospel preach, they all accepted Jesus and are growing His believers, but they need Bibles. You can send one today for only $5, $50 sends 10, every gift matched. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 Y E S W O R D, or give it SendBiblesNow.org. This is Bible League International. Many women in the Middle East are treated as less valuable, forced to marry young, and denied an education, meaning that many cannot read or write. So Bible League is giving them the gift of literacy and dignity and showing them God's great love. Magda was asked by her husband to skip these literacy classes, but she endured and something beautiful came about. Learn what she did to win her extremist husband over. Hear it all now. It's only 15 minutes and free of charge at BibleLeague.org slash podcast. BibleLeague.org slash
2: podcast. Asked. the thing that solidified the reality that you were my wife was your heart for god when the scripture says he that finds a wife so i began confirming with my pastor in new orleans the whole time I, yeah. I would tell him about you tell him when we you know when we spend time together and he said "Abe, hey, spend some time praying and ask god to reveal her heart to you and write down what the lord showed you and which is what i did it was all God.
1: It was really God because when you did that, you followed the instruction of your pastor and God revealed to you who I was. God showed you things that you couldn't have known at that moment in our short time meeting each other. I was so grateful because it showed me that you hear from God. And I was at that moment convinced that the only place to live is in the middle of God's will. Like I knew that was a part of the foundation that God would have us to build for our marriage, you know, going forward
2: tune in to by design saturday afternoons at 4 central on american family radio
0: Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger, hopeforthecaregiver.com. We're so glad that you are with us. I read a book many years ago from a spectacular author named John Eldridge. The book was called Wild at Heart. It came along at a very poignant time in my life, and I'm so thrilled to be able to have him here with us today. So, John, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you here. I want to get right to it. I very much appreciate you being here with us. Masculinity is something that's very much in your wheelhouse, and it's under assault in this culture and this world, particularly biblical masculinity. Before we get into the whole concept of this in the caregiver world where I live, I I wanted to set the table with a conversation I had with a young man several years ago at Vanderbilt Medical University. I was there visiting. A friend asked me to come because a family member had been sick. And he asked me just to kind of be there for the family. And I was. And in the process, I encountered a distant family member. He's a young man. He's about six four or 5", 285, 90 pounds minimum. I mean, I'm six feet and he's towered above me. And I got to talking with him. I said, what are you, are you in school? And he said, I'm uh, get my master's at Memphis State University. I said, what are you studying? He said, gender studies. Was well, the first time I'd ever heard this, that this was actually a degree. And I said, well, that can't be a very complicated course is only two genders and he looked a little bit stunned and he said, well, I have three sisters, but I identify as male. And I looked at this beast of a boy. I mean, he could be an offensive tackle. And I looked at him and I thought he was joking at first. I said, buddy, was that an issue? And he looked like he'd been offended. He was so, so hurt by the fact that I challenged him on this and I had no concept. And of course, now it's just commonplace to hear this kind of stuff. What are your thoughts? And where are you with all this as far as speaking with clarity into this issue that it seems to be gripping our culture almost virulently?
3: Oh, yeah. There's a lot of anger, heartache, rage, hostility around the gender questions. Let's go to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created his image, the imago Dei, the image of God on the earth, male and female. He made them. Gender is how we bear the image of God. It is filled with dignity. It, it is filled with beauty and power and holiness. And so, when you have a culture like ours that is literally decreating gender, you, you, you have the attack at the epicenter now. We are at the epicenter of the fight for humanity at, because to dismantle gender, is to take apart the most sacred thing about a human being. It's filled with heartache though. I do have to bring a level of deep compassion and understanding. We have, you know, we have parents on our staff whose kids are in deep, deep uh, trauma around you know, gender confusion, transgender, uh, their sexuality, et cetera. So it's a I think it is an incredibly ripe time. For the ministry of Jesus into people's gender confusion. But yeah, this is a pretty tough moment for our culture.
0: Well, I wrote about this in an article in the Washington Times, and I took from a different perspective of um, where a lot of people are arguing about stuff. I just simply went from where Gracie and I walk with our sons, and Gracie gave up both of her legs, one after each child was born. But at no point did any child of ours come to us and say, Hey, I want to have my leg cut off so I can be like mom. And I said, How is this different than what we're doing to children? You know, amputation is a one-way street. You do this, you're not coming back from this. And I approached it from that perspective of this mutilation that's going on, just that we are responding with surgery to something that is far deeper.
3: Yes. And
0: and how do we do this from a biblical worldview? with clarity, with conviction, and like you said, with compassion. Because I do believe that there's so much turmoil in the hearts and and, and of of families. And I had a, a lady out here who was struggling because her son now identifies as a woman, and she didn't know how to respond to him. And he was angry with her because she kept pictures of him as a boy around the house. And I said to her, I said, who owns the house? And she said, well, I do. And I said, well, you tell your son, you can grieve over your, the loss of your son however you wish to. It's your house. Yeah. And, and she seemed to be okay with that answer because she was struggling for solid ground, like you said. Yes. What are some things that you're seeing that the church is getting right in this?
3: Well, <clears throat> I would say healing trauma. Healing trauma. Because most of what's going on, as you said, Peter, this is at the level of the soul. It doesn't begin biologically. It begins with trauma, I'm guessing, a great deal of trauma within. It's either childhood sexual abuse, or it is other forms of unhealed places within their soul that then allows the confusion in, or even the hatred of their own masculinity or femininity. So that's one piece. The church is doing a very good job now. They're taking trauma seriously. We're helping people with their childhood trauma. The other thing that's going on, because there's two stories. I've got some really good news, gang. I know it looks awful out there, but there's a whole nother story going on, and that is the recovery of fatherhood. There are good men out there who are taking their role as father seriously. And this is a grassroots movement. You're not going to see it in the Washington Post, you're not going to hear about it on NPR, but I can tell you, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of men around the world who are taking this role very seriously. And if you heal fatherhood, you heal the family. And if you heal the family, you will do a great deal to strengthen and sort of fortress young people against
0: gender confusion. This has got to do Something in your heart when you see these fathers rise up at these school board meetings and things such as that—you—you've got to just want to stand up and just start cheering, because it is—it—it it, you're right. It is a grassroots thing. Nobody, nobody is organizing this and trying to make a seminar about it. They're just right. dads being dads and and celebrating fatherhood. And I I um I see some in in the entertainment industry who are pushing back on this. With a, a level of force. I, I think I look at one of them is Tim Allen and, and the way he has approached this. And I, I follow him on Twitter and I'm and I see things in him that saying, you know, I'm rejecting all this nonsense and being a dad. And yeah. I and I'm watching others that are similar to him in this manner because I think people have had enough. And this is something that's deeply troubling. And I feel like the church, you're right, it's a ripe opportunity here for us to be involved. What are some areas of opportunity? that we may be remiss on or that there's some certainly some opportunities to to gain ground on that we can do as the church
3: the church needs to remember that our a game is jesus christ our a game is not having a phenomenal childcare program or a phenomenal school or A game is not, you know, various types of justice programs. Those are all important. I think those are all reflections of our Christian faith. But our A game is Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said the most practical political move you can ever make is to lead someone to Jesus Christ because you change the heart, right? You can change a country. And what we need is, well, it's going on. I mean, thousands of people coming to faith in Christ right now around the U.S. and around the world, millions around the world, that is the fundamental place of transformation. So you told a story, time for my story. So I used to work in Washington, D.C., and I was uh, doing an interview years ago with the Department of Health and Human Services. The secretary then was uh, Louis Sullivan. He was a very, very brilliant man, very good man. And they walked me through the building and the programs, and they described it was an hour-long interview, you know, and I remember Peter walking away from that interview, walking back across the mall. I'm a young man in politics. And I said, that will never work. And It was like teen pregnancy and, and all that stuff. I said, that will never work because what it takes is a transformed heart. And that is the church's A game. <laughs> we, nobody, nobody can transform the human heart like God. And so I just want to re, kind of remind everybody, that's our A game. Let's, let's not lose our A game while we try and get involved in, in other things, you know, community programs and justice and soup kitchens and that kind of thing, because the reason we do those other things is so that people might have a transformed heart out of an encounter with the living God.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, uh, Scripture says, you know, so that we don't become weary of doing good works, the core of it is rescuing these hearts that are, and, and like you said, so much trauma. And when we talk about the church, I want to also clarify for listeners, I'm not talking about individual organized churches across the Fruited Plains. My mother and I talked about this one time years ago. She said, the organization of the church is on life support. The organism of the body of Christ is alive and well. Yes. And and I thought, okay, I can live with that. <laughs> so I want to be a part of that organism yeah, and I want to I want to pivot a little bit to talk about masculinity, which is undersought in in the world I live in, which is family caregivers. And historically, this world has been um, overwhelmingly populated by women serving as caregivers. Right, but there's an increasing number of men doing this, and it brings a different dynamic. I was I was interviewed by several folks to talk about this. We do a lot of the same task. There's uh, so many caregivers out there women who are doing some of the same tasks I do, but as men, we bring a different approach to it. And I think that's the thing I want to encourage other men who are doing this. And I, I'll give you an example then I want to hear your thoughts. I've got a friend of mine at church whose wife has Alzheimer's, and I don't think he would mind me sharing this if he does. I'll get permission before I broadcast it, but she is an exceptional violin player, but she's dwindling mentally, but her music is still there. And I have encouraged him to let her come to church and play. I'll, I'll cover the heavy lifting of, of making sure it doesn't go off the rails musically. But I want her to be able to have that moment. And I want him to be able to watch her do it. And I watch the pride he has when she plays. A beauty to rescue. And as her mind is slipping and, and it's causing all kinds of challenges, when she plays, her soul is speaking. And as beautiful it is to watch her, when you watch him. And the tears are in his eyes. And he's, he's basking in this beauty of a wife who's playing exquisitely from her soul. She doesn't even rehearse. She doesn't even, we don't even have music. She just starts playing by ear because she's really that good. It, it's an extraordinary thing to watch. And I want men to understand that there is still a, as you said so well in Wild at Heart, there's still a beauty to rescue, even in the midst of Alzheimer's. Yes. Share your thoughts on that. I think
3: that men do bring something very special to this space, Peter, because the essence of masculinity is strength on behalf of others. And where the world has really mistaken it is they think it is strength on behalf of yourself. It's just the, the boats and the cars and the, you know, the trophy wife and that sort of thing. No, 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 no. True masculinity is courage and strength on behalf
0: of others. I hate to, but we've got to take a quick break, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more of John Eldridge. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver.
3: Hey moms and dads, are you at your wit's end? Hi, this is Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm so grateful for the partnership we have with American Family Radio. We share a common goal to bring hope to hurting families, through the life-changing medium of radio. Be sure to listen Saturday afternoons at 430 Central on American Family Radio. Find help and hope for your family with Parenting Today's Teens.
1: Are you running away from God? Lots of things can cause people to turn their back on God. Maybe you feel God let you down. Maybe you got tangled in sin, or maybe you just got busy with life. Do you remember the story about the prodigal son in the Bible? When this wayward son returned home, he was met with open arms by his dad. That's the way your Heavenly Father feels about you. Come back to God. He's waiting for you. I'm Pastor John Miller. Visit me at churchontherock.org.
0: This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Forty years ago, Ronald Reagan described the totalitarian communist enemy that threatened to destroy our country as the evil empire. That famous presidential depiction of the Soviet Union was key to the strategy he successfully pursued to leave Marxism and Leninism on the ash heap of history. Tragically, we face today another Marxist-Leninist regime busily establishing an empire that is, if anything, even more evil and certainly far more of what Reagan called an existential threat to freedom than the USSR was in its heyday. That threat emanates from the Chinese Communist Party waging unrestricted warfare against us to achieve global governance expressly embraced by its megalomaniacal emperor, Xi Jinping. We must do as Ronald Reagan did, recognize the spiritual nature of the war we are in, delegitimize our evil enemy, and adopt and execute a strategy for its decisive defeat. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. And before we went to the break, John, you were talking about real masculinity is courage and strength on behalf of others. Unpack that more. When we can bring that courage and strength
3: to bear in the epicenter of our relational world with those that we love, I think that is, Peter, the deepest expression of masculinity. I think there's a place for it in sports. I think there's a place for it in the military in the academic world, but in the epicenter. It is the strength of your own heart as a man present to offer strength to rescue the hearts of those you love. And so as he fights for his wife to have a moment of music, right? He is fighting for her heart in that. Yeah, it's unspeakably beautiful. I think it is the essence of real masculinity. You don't have to be a lumberjack. This isn't about, you know, racing (laughs) Racing motorcycles on the aisle of you know uh, of man or or being a bull rider in the pro rodeo circuit. It really isn't true masculinity. True courage is exactly what you were just describing. It is the courage to love.
0: You know, I I've struggled with this as you know, I've been caring for Gracie now for 37 years. And years ago, somebody said, you know, well, Jesus understands, Jesus understands. And I I looked through all the scripture and I didn't see anybody taking care of a woman through 80 surgeries and both legs amputated and all the stuff we've dealt with. And then I stepped back from the whole of scripture and with the help of others, including your book, I was able to see a different picture that I have. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I realized that our savior is in love with the wounded bride. And he's the ultimate caregiving husband. And I have a savior that I can identify with because I understand now, oh, he understands on ways that I I don't. Because we're a messed up, broken bunch of people. And he is rigorously, vigorously, zealously pursuing our hearts to the point of his, his spilling of his own life. Yes. And I I want, first and foremost, caregiving husbands to understand that concept that you have a savior who really gets this. Yes. And then I want to pivot a little bit here because I have a Facebook group that I do for caregivers. And I ask, is there anything you'd like for me to ask John in this interview? And a precious lady asked, she said, oh, yes. And I'm going to read what she said. This is something that has been on my mind so much lately. How to help my husband with the brain injury feel he is still head of our home and what I can do to show him, I, I'm teared up as I read it, show him I still admire and look to him as the strength in our family. Very hard when he needs care, can't work or drive and struggles with relationships due to communication and thinking deficits. I mean, you could hear the plea of this woman who really wants to honor her husband in this.
3: Yes. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. Let, let, um, let me build, let me build a, a story here, an answer and it begins with boyhood. Every little boy has a very core question and the question is, do I have what it takes? That is the core question of every man. Do I have what it takes? Do I have a genuine strength, courage, power that I can bring to the world? And most little boys are wounded very badly in that fundamental question, and that's why he goes silent or he goes to rage or you know whatever as a man. He stays all day at work because he feels powerful at work, but he doesn't feel powerful at home. The search for the answer to the question, do I have what it takes, is the fundamental search of a man's life as a wife or a brother, as a father, an uncle, as a son. You can speak words still that say, dad, you have what it takes. To her specific situation, I would say, ask his opinion on things. Ask his opinion. Let, let him have a voice still. Now, I realize you're going to have to filter some of the opinions you know, about financial things and stuff through the grid of wisdom and, and counsel, but still to respect the inner man that is there. In the ways and then just say it just literally say it honey you still have what it takes in my eyes you still have what it takes that is
0: gold mm. you have to give me a moment on that one because <laughs> that is that is what we need to hear that is what I, I i'm thinking about so many in this audience who are in that situation and they struggle with this i, mean, I, I had a guy call into the show one time whose father was so abusive to him. He was an alcoholic and so abusive. And one of the things I've done, John, you may not know on my program, that I have included family members of alcoholics and addicts as caregivers. Because as long as there's a chronic impairment, there's a caregiver. And this father now got hurt, or he had a stroke and he needed a lot of care, but he's still drinking and he's still abusive verbally. He's not as much physically, but certainly uh, verbally. And this guy who's 50 years old, has children, he said... When I'm around him, I feel like I'm nine years old again. Yep. And I told him, I said, your family deserves the 50-year-old version of yourself. Your father has made his choices. I respect the fact that he's got his own thing to do. That's, that's his journey. But you're not required to. And I think this is where men and women get really twisted around, where Scripture says we honor our father and mother, but we're not required to honor abuse and alcoholism and addiction. And we can separate those two. We can honor the person that they are, but not the abuse and the alcoholism. You've seen this in a lot of places where where kids are traumatized by this, and yet they have this some type of twisted sense of guilt and obligation because it's my parent. I have to be such and such. And we've got people now caring for aging parents, changing adult diapers of people who abuse them. And they are so twisted in their hearts. And I'd love for, in the last bit of time we have, I'd love for you just to share your thoughts on that and the healing process of that. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. You're in my wheelhouse now. So I've been a Christian therapist for 35 years. I would say two things are going on here. First off, that nine-year-old needs care. The nine-year-old is real. The nine-year-old is there. Childhood trauma freezes certain parts of our emotional development. And there actually is a nine-year-old in there. He needs Jesus. He needs his heavenly father. And so to ask God, when you're aware of those young places, when the the trauma is triggered, when the fear or the anxiety or the rage comes in again, it's in those moments that you practice what Revelation 3 says. He said, Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. Let me in. You open the door of that memory. You open the door of that stage of your life. And you say, Jesus, I need your healing here. Come to me here because the soul is healed through union with Christ. That's how it's healed. Now, on the other side, on the caregiving spectrum of abusive parents, that sort of thing, this is not just for masculinity. It's for femininity, too. But I want to say the secret of Jesus's masculinity was his union with his father. Guys, we are way beyond situations, most of us now, where just being a good man is going to do it. You don't, you don't have enough fuel in that tank. You can't sustain that over decades. You have to have union with God. You have to have that. Your soul is made for it. This is the secret of masculinity. And this, it surprises many men because they think, no, I've just got to muscle through and be a good man. And I will tell you that will not sustain you. You already know that you have to have a deeper well and the deeper well is your life with god your prayers your worship your scripture time your walk in the park or your walk through the forest listening to music the moments that you get in your day 60 seconds where god is able to give you the strength you need to to face the battles that you're facing now it's not about being a tough guy it is about having a deep
0: life in God. Hmm. John, I these are things that that constantly come up. One of the things I've done on this show is bypass the caregiving task because I don't think anybody needs help figuring out how to give an injection. You got that, it's one and done. You change an adult diaper, it's one and done. You, you, you deal with an insurance company, it's one and done. But this area is where the turmoil is for so many people. And this audience is, they're hurting desperately. Yes, Uh, men and women—they—they are thinking that God has abandoned them. They are thinking that this is punishment. They're thinking that this is just an encumbrance to anything in their life.
3: Yeah.
0: In our closing time, uh, your whole career has been spent going in fearlessly, going into places that are that a lot of people wouldn't want to go to, and they're very painful places share whatever's on your heart to those folks who are oh, maybe friends. in the middle of the night doing this.
3: Yeah, there's so there's so much I want to share. I'm going to give you some surprising advice. You need a baseball bat and a trash can. <laughs> I'm dead serious. You or 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 a piece of, you know, a, an old running shoe and a sofa cushion. You need a place to take your anger. Your anger at the situation, your anger at God, And I literally have broken the lid of our city supplied recycling bin that's supposed to be indestructible. I've broken it with a baseball bat because where do you take that? You can't just bury it. And I actually use it as a time of prayer where you are able to vent your emotions in a healthy way. You have to get physical. That's what I'm saying. Get a spatula and a sofa cushion, something where you just get to pound, 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 pound. pound, While your heart is crying out, how much longer, God? Why is this going on? Where are you, Father? Your body literally needs to do that because the body holds the trauma as the heart expresses itself, and God will meet you there. He will meet you in your honesty. What's difficult is to meet you when you bury your own heart. Don't bury
0: your heart. Well said. Last thought, because it, when you say that, it reminded me of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And there's some scholars who think that when he said Jesus wept, that there was a visceral anger at death, that that's Jesus himself there. did
3: this. It is. Yes, it literally means to snort in spirit,
0: and it's a word used for a war horse. Then if, if our Savior can do it, so can we, because yes. <laughs> that's that's the standard and that's the uh, the the principle that we follow, and like you said, that is that is where it's all happening. Um, your newest book is Restoring a Resilient, Restoring Your Weary Soul in These Turbulent Times. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> remember when they were saying, during these uncertain times, and all the commercials, I was like, what has there ever been certain? You know, <laughs> what has ever yeah. been certain? But when people want to find out more about you, and I know their hearts have been pricked today, what's the best place for them to go to? So our
3: organization is wildatheart.org, O-R-G, and you can come there and listen to our podcast and try the pause app and some emotional health resources for you.
0: Please take advantage of this. And John, this is a something I've actually wanted to do for a very long time. And I, I appreciate all your people helping put all this together. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for being here, part of this program.
3: It's a delight to chat with you, Peter, and and to have a voice in your audience of very brave, brave souls. I really do take my shoes off.
0: You've been listening to my interview with John Eldridge, author of Wild at Heart and so many other books, a powerful voice to the wounded hearts of men and women who are struggling to come to grips with the trauma in their lives and the healing that is available to them in Christ. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Peter Rosenberger. Have you ever helped somebody walk for the first time? I've had that privilege many times through our organization, Standing with Hope. When my wife, Gracie, gave up both of her legs following this horrible wreck that she had, as a teenager, and she tried to save him for years, and it just wouldn't work out. And finally, she relinquished them and thought, "Wow, this is it. I mean, I don't have any legs anymore. What can God do with that?" And then she had this vision for using prosthetic limbs as a means of sharing the gospel—to put legs on her fellow amputees. And that's what we've been doing now since 2005. With Standing with Hope, we work in the West African country of Ghana, and you can be a part of that through supplies, through supporting team members, through supporting the work that we're doing over there. You could designate a limb. There's all kinds of ways that you could be a part of giving the gift that keeps on walking at standingwithhope.com. Would you take a moment to go out to standingwithhope.com and see how you can give. They go walking and leaping and praising God. You could be a part of that at standingwithhope.com.
2: The Word of God tells us many times in one form or another, fear not. Today in the world, many people are very fearful about some of the many perils and dangerous happenings that are going on in the world. Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 tell us He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty I will say of the Lord He is my refuge and my fortress My God in Him I will trust I'm Joseph Parker And we here at the American Family Association Would like to remind you Fear not Put your trust in the Lord We'd like to both encourage and challenge you To aggressively put your faith to work And one way to do that is to pray Psalm 91 daily for yourself and your family and keep your trust in Him. If you'd like to get a copy of the Psalm 91 prayer for yourself, email us here at psalm91 at afa.net. Again, that's psalm91 at afa.net.
0: this is Peter Rosenberg. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. Oh, happy day. So glad that you're with us. for the Caregiver.com. Remember in the first segment of today's program, I talked about what to say to a caregiver, how to start off, how to have that conversation. You know, I've learned this over a lifetime. I, I learned to speak fluent caregiver. And I have been immersed in this world for so long. And and I I I don't know if some of you heard an interview I had with some missionary friends of mine in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo some months back. They are Wycliffe Bible translators in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it used to be the Belgian Congo. One of the things I've learned from people who do Bible translation is you don't show up on the first day and start translating the Bible. You have to spend time in the world that you're you're going into you have to immerse yourself in the culture with the people understanding the nuances and all the things of their language as and an interesting point is he said that most of the people there speak French and Swahili that's a common those are the common languages around the country which is the you know it's a it's a big area and there are a lot of tribal tongues but the, the, the common tongues are French and Swahili so when you speak scriptures and that they all understand it he said but they come alive when you translate it into the language of their hearts, their tribal language. And I thought that's, that's like all of us. We all want to be communicated to in the language of our hearts, but sometimes we don't even know the language of our hearts. Sometimes we have feelings that are so bottled up inside of us. We don't even know how to process it. And then somebody comes along and says things in a way that makes sense finally. And we're like, our ears just immediately turned it's like it's like they got a hold of us in a way and you know i've been that way and sometimes in in foreign countries when i go over to ghana and i'll hear somebody talking with an american accent or better yet a southern accent and man i could hear a southern accent i could hear a y'all all the way across the airport there in Accra. you know because our ears pick up i mean we we, we just we light up when we hear it in our language and this is why I have such a great respect for Bible translators because of what they do. They're communicating this great word of God into a language that people can understand. Well, I've talked about this a lot with caregivers. What about caregivers? How do you speak to a caregiver in a way they understand? And I, you hear me often say, I'm fluent in caregiver. I speak caregiver fluently. I really do. I've been immersed in this for so long. I've spent time with it. I've understood the core issues and the nuances and all the things that go on with living in this culture and some of the basic phrases like I could say hello in about seven different languages but that's all I can say well one of the basic phrases in caregiver is take care of yourself well that's just basic that's like saying hola in Spanish and now I'm fluent in Spanish because I can say hola (laughs) no that's just basic the the complex places where caregivers live require understanding all the nuances and it takes time to do that i've spent that time and that's why i'm so excited to tell you about this new book of mine that's coming out it'll be out in may and I ha- i've alluded to it a little bit but i just want to spend a little time with this at the end of the program if you don't mind and it's called a minute for caregivers when every day feels like Monday. And I'm going to be talking about this as it gets closer to the release date. And you can find out more about this right now uh, at hopeforthecaregiver.com book, hopeforthecaregiver.com book if you want to know more about it and why I did it this way. When you speak to a caregiver, you don't need to get into these long chapters of, uh, okay, try this for, you do this for six months or do this and here's how you negotiate with this. No, that's not where caregivers live. I did this for one minute at a time because I know this world. We don't have time for a lot of other stuff, and I don't have time to to get to the end of the book before I get something that's meaningful out of it. I need to pick up the book, flip it to any page, and find something on that page that's going to help me today, right now. That's the world of a caregiver. I don't need something that's complex to understand that takes a lot of time, that's involved. I just want something to just get right to it. Say it in a way that I can understand. With that in mind, I set out to write one minute snippets, like average about 200 words and a quote for fellow caregivers. And I put together a whole bunch of these things, over a hundred of them, just getting right to the point, something easy. And you can literally read every one of these things in a minute. I timed them. You, you can't. It's very simple. And I put it out there for my fellow caregivers. And, and I, I got the idea of the title because I was calling a doctor's office one day, and you'll relate to this. You know how I always ask people when they come on the program, how are you feeling? And I, you know, I just did that. I, I do that pretty much all the time. And I asked the uh, the lady there trying to get a billing issue going, and I said, how are you feeling? She said, I'm great. It's Friday. And before I could catch myself, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but I said it Friday means nothing to me. Every day is Monday. And I, I cringe. I shouldn't have said it. But I went back and I thought about that. And I thought, you know, for caregivers, that's the way it feels sometimes is every day is Monday. You know, what does Friday mean? What does a holiday mean? What does a vacation mean to us that are particularly as full time caregivers? And and I thought, okay, so what do I write about? And I thought, a minute for caregivers when every day feels like Monday. And that's what this book is. And I'm, I'm very pleased with it. I think that you will be too. I think you'll be very proud of this book, not only to be able to read in your own circumstances, but to offer it to someone else when you don't really know what to say. I, I do. I know how to speak to fellow caregivers and i want as many people as possible to understand the language of caregivers so that we as a community can feel heard understood seen and you know engaged in in all the things that are going on that we're not just periphery we're not just backdrop we're not just the the person pushing the wheelchair in the park kind of thing you know that's not who we are and more importantly i want you to understand that Christ sees you, that you are seen by God, and that what you do is important. What you do has value. Who you are is important, and who you are has value. And I I recognize that the train wreck that's in the caregiver's heart is what's at play here. Not the task that we have to do. If you'll notice, I mean, those of you who listen to the show regularly know this. I don't spend a lot of time on the task of caregiving. To me, that seems almost pointless. Do you really want me to do a show that comes on every week and talks about how to better deal with a colostomy bag or changing a dressing or giving a shot? I mean, there's YouTube videos for that kind of stuff, and there's training for that. And once you got it, you don't need it again. But the fear, the obligation... The resentment, the despair, the heartache, the frustration, the exasperation. Those are things that we constantly run up against. I promise you, I know how to give a shot. I know how to deal with a doctor. I know how to deal with an insurance company. And once you got it, you got it. But I need to be constantly reminded of how to deal with me how to deal with unmet expectations, how to deal with demandingness and selfishness that I exhibit all too often, how to deal with fear, how to better understand God's provision in all this in ways that escape me at times. And I freely admit that, but I've tried to assimilate from a variety of sources throughout this long journey that Gracie and I both had and to put this in a way that makes sense to us. Now, you know, I I probably shouldn't say this. So y'all don't tell nobody I'm about to say this, okay? But, you know, I mean, (laughs) this book is so easy. You can read it in the bathroom. I know because that's where I wrote it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Just don't don't send any letters. If you got to send an email about that, send it to peter at the internet dot Google. But I, I wanted it just simple. For you, for me, for that pastor out there who's got people in his congregation he doesn't know how to necessarily address that are going through things. Maybe it's a, it's a counselor who's just opened up their new shop. Maybe it's a primary care doctor. Maybe it's somebody who has a, a friend who's struggling with an alcoholic family member, and they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. That excuse now is over. You will have a resource for that individual, for yourself and for others. And I'm really grateful to be able just to tell you about it. If you want to know more information, you can visit hopeforthecaregiver.com book. And there's more information about this that you can learn. And I would, I would um, just ask you to continue to lift this whole project up in prayer. Nobody's ever done anything like this for the family caregiver. And one of the things I love about being on this network is that we're going on offense with this. I've talked about this several times, and I just did a a video thing with American Family Association. It'll be out later in the summer. I love that we get to go on offense on this issue. We're going boldly into the heartache of so many people's lives, and we're sharing with confidence and clarity the gospel in a way that they maybe never have heard before. That is something that is extremely important to me, and I... And I thank you for the privilege of being able to do it each week. I thank you for the notes that you send me. And I thank you for the, the trust that you place in me to, to work through these issues with you. I don't provide solutions. I'm a traffic guard. I'm a, I'm a crossing guard. That's all I am. I'm just pointing you to safety. And that's, that's my mission is to point you to safety. Because others have pointed me along the way. But I've had to forage for so much of this, and I've, I've, but I've remembered it. I've kept it together, and I've organized it now in a way that makes sense to fellow caregivers who are in great distress. So hopeforthecaregiver.com slash book if you want to know more information. This is Peter Rosenberg. This is Hope for the Caregiver. Healthy caregivers make better caregivers. Let's be healthy together. We'll see you next time.